0: Just what's in your hand? <clears throat> so, if you have your uh, Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter three. That's Exodus Exodus chapter three. Hey guys, I'm able to control it up here. So, Exodus chapter three, verse seven through ten the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. These verses capture uh, the heart of God. You say, well, what do I mean uh, by that? The Israelites were... Uh, suffering, and they were crying out uh, underneath the weight of their oppression of the Egyptians. They had endured, uh, not endured, enjoyed a long period of time of flourishing under Egyptian uh, rule after Joseph, and then when a new pharaoh came up and Joseph was gone, that pharaoh began to oppress the Jewish people, uh, and they began to cry out under the weight of their oppression and their suffering. They were looking for uh, complaining. What does it mean to cry out? They were complaining and looking for reprieve, right? I know. I like. I cry out in my suffering, right? I cry out. I'm complaining and I'm looking for some sort of reprieve wherever it's going to come from. And so God comes down to do something about it. And why does this, these verses capture the heart of God? Because this, uh, even though here. God is referring to Israel as his people and the Egypts as the oppressors um, and the promises to remove them. This, is, this promises for the larger uh, world as well later on. This is God's heart to the people he's created. Now, let's pause here because in Christendom sometimes we think God only loves Christians. It's not true. God loves everybody. Everybody. So everybody who's made in the image of God, which is every human being walking on two legs or even one leg or no legs, is loved by God. And when they cry out, he hears their cries. And he does something about it. It's quiet. Because God loves the people he created. Whether they're serving him or not serving him, he loves them. And when they cry out in their suffering, God does something about it, and He promises them that if they uh, if if they will cry out to Him and see Him as the source of their of their liberation and the source of their strength, that He will lead them to a place of, of a land flowing in milk and honey, which means a very prosperous land, a land where the their problems kind of go away. And we've we've had that promise, haven't we? That if we follow God, and we will. We will give our lives to him and seek after him. He will lead us to our promised land. And so even though this is specific to the Israelites, it speaks later on for all of us. So these verses capture the heart of God. And it's important to understand that whenever people pray, whenever people cry out from the weight of their oppression, injustice, mistreatment, etc., God is faithful to respond. He might not respond in the timeline we like, He might not respond in the way that we like, but God is faithful to respond. And God always, you can look through the scriptures, always finds a person who is willing to go on behalf of God. The only time that you see really God doing anything without human beings is creation. Right? God always calls somebody. Invite somebody, go on my behalf. We see it, Abraham, right? We see, we see it in Isaiah. We see it on the judges. God raised, up, God raised up a judge who would lead his people. We always see God raising up somebody to go on God's behalf. The world around us is harassed and chaotic. We all know that. We all complain about it. And it seems helpless, the world itself seems helpless to do anything about it. And it's in this that God sent Jesus Christ to the world. We know we love these verses. For God so loved the Christians. For God so loved those that are pure and upright and holy. No, God. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, go to the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So, this is the heart of God. And so, when the world has cried out and is helpless and can't do anything about it, just like the Israelites were in Egypt, God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to do something about it. And then we have this awesome phrase that Jesus says, which is this. In John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is what missions is about. God has heard the cries of broken humanity and is sending you on his behalf. Let me repeat this. This is what this whole month is about. This is what missions is about, that God has heard the cries of broken humanity, and he's sending you on his behalf. Exodus 3 and 4 record God and Moses' conversation about this whole topic, and Moses' response could easily be our response, and often it is, and we're going to look at it this morning. In verse 11, uh, Moses responds to God and he says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And on hearing the statement that, hey, God is sending you on his behalf to a broken humanity. Your first response would be like, who am I? I'm a nobody. I don't have any kind of special worth. I don't have any special ability. I don't have some sort of Positional thing that I can make much influence. I don't have. I'm not a person of great resources, etc., etc., etc. The question: Who am I that I'm going on God's behalf? I'm. I'm really not anybody of special notoriety or special anything that God should ask me to go on His behalf. So Moses asked that question. Well, who am I to go to Pharaoh? I'm not anybody special. God responds in verse 12. He says, God said, I'll be with you. So that's your promise and my promise when God calls you and sends you somewhere and you go, who am I? I'm not anybody special. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And then he makes this interesting statement. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Oh, thank you, Lord, a fleece know that you're with me. Right, God? What is it? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What? That's after the fact. Hey, you know how you'll know I'm with you? When you're successful. I don't like that. I want to know God is with me before I step out. I want to know God is going to provide for me before I make the first move. I want to know God is with me before I put that money in the offering or before I offer my services or before I sacrifice anything. God, you better show me you're with me. And God says, you know what? You know how you'll know I'm with you? When you've done it. Just, it's the Bible, it's not Pastor Steve. So, when God has broken your heart for something... Or he's drilled down and said, hey, you have this you can offer. And you go, I want to know this, you're in this, God. God's like, "Um, why do you think your heart's broken and you're seeing that? That's how you know I'm with you. And you'll have your confirmation when you're successful. So then Moses, you know, that's just not enough for him. So he says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What should I tell him? This is interesting because we're like, that's a dumb question. It's God. But Israel has been in Egypt for so many years, they don't know who God is anymore. They'd forgotten god of their fathers, the god of their ancestors they, he was just a piece of history and the Egyptians had multiple gods Pharaoh was god, there were all of these gods in that culture and in that time every people had a god so here Moses is coming from a distant land because he'd flee to Midian so they may have assumed it's the god of Midian that's going to send me. so Moses says hey when you know when I go who should I tell them is sending me In our context, uh, right now, we're living in a world um, that has a plethora of, reli- plethora of religions. You know, is it Buddhism? Is it Hinduism? Is it um, Islam? Is it Christianity? Is it any of other, other? There's thousands, tens of thousands of religions in the world. And we're in a society like, hey, I like this piece of this one and I like this piece of this one and I like this piece of this one this is called syncretism which is basically buffet I'm going to put my own plate together of what I want in a God and that's going to be the God I'm going to serve this is the world we live in so when the world, when the world tells us to go with a message and the world says well who are you talking about which God are you talking about What's God's response? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Like, well, what in the world does that mean? He said, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now it seems a little arrogant. We don't need to say it in a very arrogant way. But when God says, I am, he's meaning it's the eternal God. It's the God above every gods. It's the creator of everything, He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, there is no other, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything God. That is the God who is sending me. And that is the God who is sending you. It's not some mini-God. It's not some made-up God. It's not some religious God to keep you in control and in order so that the other things can flourish. It's, it's the God who created everything, the God who lives in you, The God who's gone to prepare a place for you. The God who sacrificed everything for you. This is the God who is sending you. Have confidence in that. But again, that's not enough for Moses. And if I'm honest, it's not enough for me either sometimes. Because the next question Moses asks is probably the one that resonates the most with us. Which all of the rest of chapter 3, God spills out the plan to Moses. I am is sending you, and this is what you're going to do. And we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And say, the Lord didn't appear to you. I think that for us, for Christians who really want to love and please and serve God, this is, is the stumbling block. I believe you, God, that you're the great I am. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you are with me, even though I'm not of special worth. You will empower me, and you'll be with me, and all these kinds of things, but what if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, Psh, God didn't send you. Stop it. You're in your own head. That's nothing. What's God's response? Then the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. This is an interesting response from God. What if they don't listen to me? In some ways, God is saying, Listen, that's not really your concern. Your concern is just obeying me and doing what I've asked you to do. Whether they hear you or listen to you or believe you um, is not the primary objective. Really, Moses could be saying, but God, what if I go and they think I'm crazy? Right? That's more of kind of our language. If I tell them about you, and I deliver your message, and they think I'm, uh, you know, cuckoo, wacko, whatever the, whatever object... Uh, 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 adjective you want to use doesn't that prevent us sometimes because we don't really want to look crazy we don't want to be the odd man out we don't want to be ostracized from society we want to fit in that's why we dress similarly and we do our hair similarly and we drive cars that other people like because you can't see the outside of your car while you're driving it we want to fit in And most of that's okay. He says, what's in your hand? A staff. Well, what does that represent? Now, God uses the staff, and he tells Moses to throw it down, and God does amazing things with it, and he says that will be a sign to people that I'm with you, and he brings them through these other things. But I want to pause right here, because what does what in your hand represent? What does that represent? For Moses, he was a shepherd. It was his everyday tool. It was, it was what he uh, separated the sheep. Uh, I should grab mine. I have mine in the office. Isaiah, would you go to my office and grab my staff? I should have thought of this before, but, you know, travel and all. He uses the staff to separate the sheep, so he'll stick between, nope, nope, you go this way, nope, nope, you go this way, this way. There's usually a little hook on the end, so if one's in trouble, he can reach down and grab it or whatnot. They also use the staff to defend uh, the flock as, a, as a, uh, a weapon of sorts to, to beat away animals or, or any of those kinds of things. So it was his object of daily use. It was also his walking stick. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the Middle East. Thank you, beautiful. I can say it because she's my wife. It was just his object of everyday use. When you're you're walking and you're hiking, um, rock ledges, those kinds of things, use it for stability, to pull yourself up, to balance yourself, all those kinds of things. Um, if you If you try to walk across a stream that 's moss covered not this probably was not in the Middle East, but this is my, for me like I want my walking stick because I put it out like this because if you slip you don 't want to go down in, into the stream i don 't want to get soaking wet so and, and stepping on moss covered rocks in the middle of a stream, your likelihood your chances of slipping are are pretty good anyway all that to say it, it was his everyday Uh, Companion. It was his everyday companion. So it's the items you possess. What's that in your hand? My car. That's my everyday companion, right? My house. That's my everyday companion. What other things in your life are just things that are yours? They're just objects. They're your everyday companions. You have them, you don't even really think about them. They're just things you have. It also represents knowledge obtained, experiences, right? What is, the, what is that everyday campaign? Just the knowledge that you've obtained uh, about anything. What's that in your hand? It also represents the skills that you possess, the things that you've worked at and you've developed over the years. If we look at Moses' life, we realize that his skill as a shepherd God used to lead his people out of the promised land. Right? Just his everyday skill. He's a shepherd. He learned. He cultivated that. He was probably good at it. Just his what's that in your hand the skills? It's really uh, or what's the position or power you hold? Doesn't position or power, and we think, oh man, I'm not a CEO of a company, I'm not a this or I'm not a that, but every one of us in here has a position. You know I know what mine are? I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a pastor. Those are the positions I hold. To some, they might not mean like anything. To me, I love them. They're important to me. But those are the positions I hold. Some of you might have those same positions. Some of you might have greater positions. Maybe you do run a company. Maybe you have other positions um, I don't know. What influences you have? What, powers, what power do you have? I mean, sometimes I have a, a voice at pastor's meetings because I've, I've managed to hang on for 14 years. <laughs> I say that half-joking. Because <laughs> sometimes pastoring is just hanging on. It's like you're riding the bull. Sometimes the bull rides you, but, you know, you still stick with it. What positions, what power do you have? And here's, here's the lesson. God wants to use what you have on his behalf to reach the broken humanity for him. God wants to use what you have in your hand on his behalf to reach the world around you. That's missions. Let me, let me move away from Exodus uh, and, and we all know Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. It's the Great Commission. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, we, in the English, we, we translate this, go. Therefore, go. And uh, the English is different than the Greek, and I don't get into a whole lesson, but uh, the Greek can actually have um, other nuances with it. So, if you interpret this uh, correctly, instead of it saying, therefore, go as in in one single action, it really means, uh, as you are going, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. What is Jesus saying? Jesus isn't saying that the going is, is just one thing on your box to do. He's not saying like, hey, go on a missions trip and then, or have a separate activity like going to church. I go, I go to church. Uh, we, I had a conversation with someone this morning that, you know, uh, think of parenting. Do, do you go Parent. No, you're always a parent. Whether your kid is with you, whether your kid is at school, whether your kid is grown and moved out and has kids of their own, you are still a parent. Sometimes your actions are different or your responsibilities are different and those change and these kinds of things, but as you're parenting, raise up children. Right? That's the context of how you parent. As you're parenting, raise up children. As you're going, make disciples. It's a lifestyle of how you live. It's not a single act you do. So Jesus says, hey, as you're going, make disciples, baptize, teach. So as you're living your life, have this mindset of I'm investing in, I'm raising up people and disciples, I'm talking about Jesus, I'm living my life as I'm going. It's not a single event, it's not a something you graduate to, you start it from the moment you're saved. From the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you begin to disciple people. You say, well, I don't, you don't put a brand new convert in a, in a Sunday school room, no, you don't, but a brand new convert puts their faith and trust in Jesus, and then the next night at the bar is sitting there while he's drinking his beer, and he's going, hey, I just met this guy named Jesus. Guess what? He's sharing Jesus as he's going. He's now beginning to disciple people, even though his life's still a wreck. Right? I had a pastor one time who would, he remembers sitting at the bar, drinking and smoking cigarettes, talking about how awesome God is to the guys at the bar. He's like, I look back and I'm thinking, man, what was wrong with me? Like, not a very good example. Didn't matter. He was a better example than he had been the week before. You see, it's as we're going. Which coincides with the whole story of Moses. What's that in your hand? Because what is it that you have? What is it that's already yours? You don't have to go out and obtain something. You don't have to go out and purchase something. You don't have to go to school and obtain this or do this, and now I can go on missions. No, it's as you're going. What do you have? Do you have a car? Do you have a house? Do you have a staff? Do you have some position somewhere? Do you have, what is it, what is in your hand? <clears throat> I want to tell you a story that I heard this weekend. Um, it fit right in here and it, um, it'll illustrate what we're talking about. Um, I, I ran into a, a guy on the, the trip I was at this week who had been a pastor in China for 10 years. He was an American guy. He had gone on as a missionary and was pastoring an international church in Beijing, China. Which is really cool. He said his church was right in the area where all the embassies were. So he often had lots of diplomats come to church and all those kinds of things. And so he had these conversations. And then God tugged at his heart and said, hey, um, I want you to leave this church of 3,000 people here in Beijing and I want you to go start a church in Boulder, Colorado. And Boulder uh, is... Um, would probably be similar to, to pastoring on Cape Cod, the difference is you're in the mountains instead of near the ocean. Just the mindset of people, and uh, much like maybe the mindset of Seattle or th- those kinds of things. So it's, not a, it's, um, it's a liberal post-Christian kind of environment. And so he said yes, because that's what people do who love Jesus. He said yes and began the process of leaving the church and establishing all those kinds of things. And um, in an interview uh, on stage for the congregation, he made this off-script comment because they asked, well, where are you going to live in Boulder? And he, he didn't know. He literally packed up his belongings because it's, it's a three-month process to put it on a container ship and get it from China to Boulder, Colorado. So you pack your couch, and you don't see it for three months because it's on a ship somewhere in the world. So... They packed up their container ship, and they had no address in Boulder. And so they just wrote on the, on the shipping manifesto, delivered to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> and the people said, where in Boulder? And he goes, oh, we don't know yet. Uh, when it gets close, call us, and we'll give you the address. And um, so he shares this to the congregation, like, well, we, well, we don't know yet, but God's going to provide for us. And then he said, for some reason, he looked out of this vast congregation, he says, you know, one of you have the ability to buy us a house and pay us to live in it. And he said, I'm just kidding, you don't have to pay us. <laughs> and he looked back and he's kept going, and he was like, what, what did I just say? Like, you know, this is crazy. So a couple days later, he's on a phone meeting with some folks who are helping the transition, and one of the guys says, hey, pastor, I wasn't... Uh, in church Sunday. Um, Do you know that I was raised in Boulder, Colorado? And he said, no. He said, yeah, um, when I was a kid at nine years old, my, fam- my family immigrated from China to Boulder. And uh, this, this family out there um, kind of adopted us, and they taught us how to speak English by using the Bible. And, and I became a Christian because of that. And then I went to college in Boulder. And When I graduated college, I, you know, I met a Chinese girl and came back to China. And you know, I'm fully Chinese. So I'm, but yeah, my, my roots are in Boulder. I was like, wow, that's really, that's really cool. And he said, my wife also said that you made a comment from the pulpit. And he was like... So he said, I started to... I was a little embarrassed and shameful and I, you know, because of the culture there. And I said, yeah, I was starting to defend myself. And the guy said, I thought to myself, why not? Why not? So uh, we want to buy you a house in Boulder. And we'll let our wives figure out the details. So he's just like, okay. Like, so he hangs up and he's not sure what to do with all this. And then his wife gets on the phone uh, with the other guy's uh, wife a couple days later. And she says, yeah, we talked and we're comfortable with you going and finding a house up to $500,000. Here's the problem the average cost of a home in Boulder is $1.2 million. So now he has this great high and now a low like, oh, we got to come up with $700,000 now. But his wife is, you know, she says, hey, thank you so much, um, but we can't buy a house for only $500,000. The average cost of the house is $1.2 million. And so she says, huh, okay. Let me talk to my husband. She calls back, Couple days later, and she goes, Hey, um, so we talked, and go ahead, we're gonna give you a budget up to 1.5 million. Now, they're not gonna, it's the Chinese people's home, but they're gonna get to live in it. It's an investment for the Chinese couple. So they got to go to Boulder and go shopping with one and a half million dollars for a home. And get this, not only uh, do they get to, oh, let me, so they pick out two homes and they're trying to think of the Chinese couple and what would they like and culture and all those kinds of things. And they pick out a couple and they call and they say, we wouldn't, you know, we have whittled it down to these. What do, you, what do you want us to, which one do you want us to buy? And, and the husband said, listen, this isn't going to be our house. This is going to be your house. Whichever house best fits the ministry you have in mind, get that one. And so they get the house and uh, they sign three-year memorandum of understandings, um, and then the couple says, "And um, by the way, we're going to pay all the utilities on the house too, so you can truly live there for free." So they bought a 1.5 million-dollar house, and they pay the monthly utilities in order for this pastor to plant a church in Boulder, Colorado. It's amazing; God does amazing things. Here's the here's the point I want to make, though, about this. Uh, I want to draw attention not to the fact that this pastor had this amazing blessing in starting this work, but the family in Boulder who befriended this immigrant Chinese family who were probably lost, couldn't speak English, they're in America, they have these kids, and they adopted them and said, hey, um, we want to teach you how to speak English. And they befriended this Family and they taught him English, and they got him settled there in Boulder. Um, because the fruit of that is this. The ch- one of those children in that family became a successful business person in China who then later bought a house for a missionary to come to Boulder and plant a church. But that person who offered what was in their hand, the fact that they were Americans and they knew English, and said, hey, I'm an American and I know English, I can help these people. They offered what they had in their hand, and God used it and is using it to plant a church in a city that desperately needs it and provide for that pastor. I wonder if that American family knows how God used them. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. It's not the point. God doesn't, we don't need to know the end in order to offer what we have. God wants us to use what's in our hand. And maybe you just know English. That's all that's in your hand. Or maybe you just have some little skill set Or maybe you have more than that. It doesn't matter if we understand the details or the reasons or the outcomes. Our role is to offer what's in our hand. So, my question this morning for us is what's in your hand? What's in your hand? You have a car, you have time, you have a skill, you have some connection. What's your language? Do you have a home? Do you have experiences? What resources? What's in your hand? And it's what's in your hand that God is going to use to minister to the people around us. You don't have to go out and secure anything special. You don't have to go do some profound thing in order to achieve. God wants to use what you have in your hand right now for his kingdom, to heal a broken humanity. Because we know that the answer to a broken humanity is Jesus Christ. Right? We've all had Jesus come into our lives and felt different and be changed and be on a different path, although imperfect. There's something about Jesus Christ that changes us. What is in your hand? So I just want to take a moment and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you have that God can use. Let's just bow our heads for 30 seconds. Now, if you'd stand with me this morning, and I want you to just hold your hands out with your fists closed, And I just want you you can you don't have to say it out loud, you can say it out loud if you want. I just want you to if if you if this is your intent, I don't want you to just go through a moment. <clears throat> if this is your intent, I want you to pray what's up here, God, show me how I can use what's in my hand to help people find you. If that's the case, I want you to pray that, and then when you're done praying it, symbolically just open your hand as if you're giving what's in your hand to God. Amen? So God, show me how I can use what's in my hand to help people find you. Lord, we as a church here today, uh, we may be small. We may consistently look at that question, well, who am I? Who are we? What could we possibly do about that? But Lord, we know you are with us. We know who you are. You're the great I am. You're the forever God, the creator, sustainer of everything. And Lord, today we, we collectively say, Lord, use what's in our hand that we know that it's you that's going to affect the lives of the people around us through our obedience. We know our obedience doesn't have to be huge, it doesn't have to be overwhelming, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering, it can just be in what we have. And so, Lord, take what we have and use it so that people can find you. I pray, Lord, that as we continue in this month of missions, that You would lead us and show us how we, just ordinary people who love Jesus, can make a difference in this world. Point us, Lord. Direct us. Empower us, Lord. May we truly follow Matthew 28's Great Commission. As we're going, make disciples. Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in us as a people. I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to breathe on that and cultivate it and strengthen us and show us and open our eyes to the world around us and what you want to do through us. We give you all the honor, the praise, and glory in your precious name. Amen. Amen, Amen. church. God bless you. Uh, have a great day today. We'll see you next week when the Vonerias are here. And they're going to talk to us about missions as well. Take care. We love you.